2: Good evening and welcome to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick. My co-host Larry Dersham and I want to welcome everyone and wish you a happy Halloween weekend. Please be safe. Have a wonderful time, whatever you decide to do tomorrow. And we are going to be uh, talking about some of the news of the day today. And I'll tell you what, we always look for Halloween stories one way or another. And I know that our news cycle is dominated by so many other things so we really hope everybody can take some time and enjoy the enjoy the holiday with their family and see if you can get your kids to share those Reese's peanut butter cups afterwards isn't that the coveted a uh, sort of trading card of candy sharing afterwards Larry is that what you guys traded when you were growing up
3: <laughs> I really think that's my favorite actually that and Snickers but I don't usually eat candy these days but those are two of my favorites for sure
2: You know, I would say Butterfingers is at the very top of that list. Oh, my goodness. Hopefully, uh, hopefully everybody's given those out this year. Good stuff. Okay, so we are going to start with a story that's really dominated the news this past week as investigation continues. And that, of course, is actor Alan Baldwin. Now, what's interesting about this case, Larry, you and I as lawyers, right at the very beginning, I mean, we were speculating as to, well, are we just focusing so much on it? because it was just you know such an awful, heartbreaking tragedy, or are we focusing on it because it's Alec Baldwin? And then we wonder, gosh, do cases like this, do accidents like this happen with loss of life as a result uh, in other cases that don't involve any A-list actors and actresses, and therefore we don't hear about them? Gosh, I hope that's not true. But one of the things that's really dominated the uh, the stunning value, the wow value of this case, nobody can believe, is uh, three words you and I learned in law school, Larry, uh, flashback, res ipsa locutor. Remember what that means?
3: Right. Yeah.
2: The-
3: the res, lip, uh, locutor, or <laughs> res ipsa locator, <laughs> I haven't said it in a while, is bas- no, basically haven't. negligence. The plaintiff must prove three things, though, that the incident was of a type that does not generally happen without negligence. It was caused by an instrumentality solely in the defendant's control. That would be the gun. And the plaintiff did not contribute to the cause. I guess the plaintiff in this case would be the victim. And oh, so, thanks. yeah, I think the, the case is, is kind of made for that.
2: You know, I, I use this as an example in the torts class I teach in law school this week. And, you know, res ipse, for those of you that don't speak Latin, this, the, the thing speaks for itself. In other words, you don't have something like this occur without negligence. Now, the question, the really interesting question, um, I suppose it's interesting academically. It's it's heartbreaking for the family of the victim, but they're trying to to work through how live ammunition got into that gun. In fact, that fact, the answer to that question is so significant. That's going to drive the train both criminally and civilly. Remember what the district attorney down in New Mexico said this week. She basically said, That's the issue. How did the live round get into the gun? And she also said she wasn't going to be pressured into rushing to judgment one one way or another. They're going to do a fair and full investigation. But in terms of civil liability, Larry, now, one thing that many are talking about is Alec Baldwin's dual role as actor and executive producer, which in the negligence analysis might open him up to a broader respective. Uh, potential range of liability. In fact, you know, this low budget film might turn into a blockbuster lawsuit if in fact he is to blame. But I don't know, Larry, you and I've both been following this case all week. It seems like someone might be making a decision as to whether Alec Baldwin would be better as a witness or as a defendant, given the amount of times that weapon changed hands before it finally got to him.
3: Yeah, what a dilemma, in my opinion. Here he is, the actor that pulled the trigger, but he's also the executive producer who is, I guess you could argue, is in charge of the whole operation. And apparently uh, the film's assistant director admitted under oath that he did not check that weapon before it was given to Alec Baldwin. But yet, because of uh, Alec Baldwin is the executive producer, I don't know if he can escape civil liability on that.
2: Well, negligent hiring is something that is always an issue when you have people working on a set that aren't qualified, that have shoddy safety records, whatever it is. And one might argue, well, as the EP, perhaps he was the one that should have checked all this out before he hired these people. On the other hand, you know, if it's just a a wrongful death action and there isn't the basis to bring negligent hiring, then you would wonder, you know, Alec Baldwin wasn't the one on the set with the firearms training, nor was he the main person um, that would be assigned the task of checking the weapons. And I mean, does he have the grounds to simply rely on the representation of the person that hands it to him and says, quote, cold gun, i.e. nothing, not even blanks? I mean, those are questions that are now being in the process of being answered. But, you know, our hearts just break when something like this happens. Can you also imagine how Alec Baldwin must feel? I mean, killing a a cast member on a set and a cinematographer. I mean, you know, sometimes when you work with close groups and close quarters and uh, especially if it's a small, short staffed stage, if you will, as this appears to be, sometimes you get really close to these people and you accidentally kill one of them during a shoot Remember this happened when they were filming The Crow a while back. You remember that, Larry? Yeah,
3: that was Bruce Lee's son, yeah. I believe. And I think that was, was a very similar scenario. But basically, it wasn't that actually a, uh, a prop gun, but it had something loaded into it that accidentally shot something into his chest and it, it killed him.
2: Well, uh, yeah, we're, we're learning more about what it means to say something as a prop. You know at the beginning of the week gosh things are moving so quickly people were saying oh yeah prop gun that means it's not real but then actually that definition has really evolved to where we're talking about using real guns but with either dummy quote unquote ammunition or blanks which by the way can also cause damage if you're close enough so i think we've all really learned more of a lesson on weapon safety this week in the, you know, condensed period of time we've been following this so closely than many people have had in years.
3: Yeah, two of the guns that were on the set, they were non-functional. But the third one that was handed to Alec Baldwin on the assumption it was safe was actually a live 45 Colt style real antique gun. So it was kind of an antique gun, but it was a real one. And uh, what, yeah. a, what a what a dilemma that is. And another interesting thing, too, the person in charge of overseeing the gun props known as the armorer, her name is Hannah Gutierrez Reed. She's only, I think, 24 years old and she couldn't be reached for comment, but pretty young to have that kind of responsibility. And I don't know if it's going to come back on her at all, but I'm sure she feels terrible, too because it should never escaped her responsibility to make sure those guns were safe.
2: Well, here's a question. Why was there even live ammunition on the set? You know, we're hearing a little bit more about maybe somebody was doing target practice earlier. There's all kinds of stories that are out there circulating. But when you talk, when you think about the press conference this week, where the sheriff's department was basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing, they seem to have found a mix of live ammunition, of um, safe, Prop type weapons um, and just a, a number of other things. Now, of course, they're not showing their hand. They're not telling all, us all of it because, of course, they don't want to compromise the integrity of the investigation. But we already know by the fact that this occurred that you had, as you just mentioned, a live functional gun that Alec Baldwin then pulled the trigger for the scene. So um, very dangerous stuff. Larry, do you have a more lighthearted story to follow this with or are you going to talk about more of the same?
3: Well, uh, yeah, I, I do have a story. It's, it's commentary, so I would exempt you, Wendy, uh, and also the station for this. It's my thoughts this week. And I, I just, I'm just uh, kind of really concerned about what's happening to America. I mean, what do we have? We have uh, elections, I'm not going to go into that, that possibly had some interesting things where they were changing laws at the last minute. We have the threat of packing the Supreme Court, defunding the police, purging the military, open borders. Uh, spend money that we don't have by printing it, and then vaccine mandates. And I think one of these days we should do a whole thing on mandates. I mean, really, we have laws, we have regulations, we have court decisions that have precedent, but what are mandates? And, uh, you know, are they legal? And uh, so maybe we'll do that uh, another day too. But uh, one of the things I thought was really interesting, that have you heard that they are going to – possibly give illegal aliens, people that have came across here and the families were separated. They're talking about this, giving them $450,000 per person because they're suffering, as they say, psychological trauma. And I, I don't get that much money. You know, there's somebody that has killed serving our country in combat. Their family gets $100,000. But these people who snuck into our country, I mean, if I could sneak into another country, it's it's what's happened. And they filed lawsuits now. And the the Biden administration is thinking to give each person half a million dollars, basically. That's pretty good.
2: yeah, that's a good gig. I, I don't I can't even begin to comment on some of these um, stories that we're hearing that have to do with that. Uh, is there a counter argument to that? Are, are we sure that that's exactly what's being planned or is there more to the story?
3: Yeah, no, I, I think that these lawsuits have been filed and they're asking for something like uh, 3.7 million dollars each in these lawsuits that these attorneys are filing against the US government. And uh, just for being separated, the families were separated. And so they're they're going to uh, come up with a decision, possibly in November, where they're going to award something. And if it's going to be that much money, uh, I guess I'm in the wrong business.
2: <laughs> no, there, you are in the right business. Money never made anybody happy. Remember, we always That's talk true. about that. True. And I suppose I'll use that as the segue and the silver lining to your story. Let's follow those cases and see what actually happens. Um, But we want to tell everybody not to touch that dial. We are going to be back with more today with Dr. Wendy. Uh, Headlines with a silver lining. You do not want to miss our guest after the break. We'll be back in a flash. so, we are going to turn it over to uh, Larry just briefly to introduce a very interesting guest. Who do we have on the line with us today, Larry?
3: Yes, Wendy. Our special guest today is Gail Levin. Gail Levin is director of the Salt and Light Council that provides an entry point for churches and organizations to engage in biblical citizenship. Gail also serves as secretary of the board of the nonprofit. Public School Exit, one of Salt and Light's premium suite of ministries. She's an ordained minister. She previously led a ministry offering generational and relational healing through Jesus Christ. Gail is an award-winning writer and a former newspaper editor. She's a messianic Jewish. Uh, she, she is messianic Jewish, and she's edited books for both messianic and Christian authors. Gail is a uh, She's married to her husband, Alan, for 48 years, and they have two children and three grandchildren. So, thank
4: you for coming on the show today, Gail. Well, it's great to be with you and Dr. Wendy. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: Gail, it's very, uh, you've got such an interesting background, and I was just delighted to hear about the fact that you're an ordained minister. And I am also uh, an ordained minister in the Christian faith, and it's just, it's so nice to have you on, and I was just curious for you. What led you to go into the ministry, given everything else that you do?
4: Okay, well, basically, um, I was ministering, and I was part of an organization where um, it was helping people to leave homosexuality. And the director felt that I needed to have some kind of covering over me, and, you know, other than the church. And so that led me to Worldwide Ministries, which is an ordaining organization in Fresno, California, and so first I was licensed with them. And then in 1996, I went into, um, I started 501c3 called Generational Crossroads that off- offered relational and generational healing through Jesus Christ. And so I asked the board, can you ordain me? Because that's the kind of covering I felt I needed for that. And they were you know, gracious and I've been with them ever since.
3: Uh, Gail, we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, a really interesting topic that seems to be everywhere these days, and that's about Karl Marx. And who is he, or who was he, and how has his writings, for example, the Communist Manifesto, which was published way back in 1848, how has that become so influential
4: around the world today? Well, he's a very um, interesting Person. He was born in 1818, and he died in 1883. So he hasn't been with us for a long time, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, his father was a lawyer, and um, it was a Jewish family. And to escape anti-Semitism, they abandoned their Jewish faith when Carl was just a kid. And so, the, most of the people in their in their community were Catholic. But his father decided to become Protestant. And the interesting thing is that Karl Marx actually identified as a Christian up through his high school years. And I've looked to see, you know, I've scoured really some, some done some research, what happened after high school that turned him away from the Lord. But all I could really find is that the headmaster at, this, at the high school he was in employed liberal humanists as teachers. And that's a really great point for those of us who are raising our children now, and are looking for options out of government-funded schools because they're, of course, going in directions that are not helpful for our children right now. But uh, it does have an effect. Schooling uh, obviously does you know, have a very big effect. But to get back to Karl Marx, he actually turned uh, against the Lord. And so um, he had uh, a friend, Frederick Engels, you might have heard of him, and he said, Karl Marx is a monster possessed by 10,000 devils. And Karl Marx, uh, his, also his friend Robert Payne, said he had the devil's view of the world and the devil's malignity. And so he said also sometimes he seemed to know that he was accomplishing the works of evil. And Karl Marx himself said that he wanted to hurl gigantic curses on mankind. And he said, our enemy is God. Hatred of God is the beginning of wisdom. So this is really a spiritual battle that has manifested as cultural Marxism. And we're going to be covering this, actually. We're going to have, uh, through the Salt Lake Council, uh, we're having a lecture about this, about cultural Marxism and the history of Marxism um, on the uh, 15th of this month. It's, it's the third Monday of the month, and people can register for that. Uh, if they want to join us through the Salt Light Council, oh, that's great! You know,
2: we have so many uh, well-meaning parents, uh, just who adore their children. I mean, they're of all different faiths, all different demographic backgrounds, and all they want is the best for our precious young ones that we're raising to to, to do the right thing in society. Uh, how how prevalent is it that you know some of these parents are actually aware? of what's being taught in the schools. Now, I know right now we're battling some of, you know, the most explosive school board meetings we've ever seen precisely because an increasing amount of parents are becoming aware of what's going on in the schools. But I mean, are we there yet in terms of the parents actually knowing what the kids are being taught? And then if they do, um, how, how do some of these things continue to be taught even when there's such pushback? Often, often, like I said, from parents of all different denominations, just on really not wanting to, to be the last to know what the teachers are, are letting their kids in on?
4: Well, those are great questions. And as far as how is the word getting around, it's been slow in coming. We have um, public school exit is one of our um, suite of ministries, and we have um, people who are now leading that with us we we create a platform for it and they've been pushing this message uh dr wendy for decades decades and they've gotten you know a lot of pushback from the church because people did not want to believe that this was really you know happening and that government schools were as bad as they have become and and so this has been you know it's been a march of terror basically uh through our through our public schools and um what was the other part of your question i'm sorry
2: you know, I, it's just when we talk about some of these issues, it, some of the parents, uh, just have—they're the, the last to know what the teachers are are sharing with the kids in school, and I just find that that goes across the board. You know, there's one thing that we as parents all have in common is our just our love and admiration and, and care and concern for our children. Of, I mean, that's a bipartisan issue. It's a you know, non-denominational issue. It's everybody cares about the kids. Yet it seems like some of these uh, doctrines, whatever they are, I mean, there's a wide variety of things that are taught to kids that parents don't agree with, but it just seems a consistent theme that whatever the kids are being taught, the parents aren't in on. They seem to be the last to know. And I'm always just wondering, how does this keep happening? And given the explosive nature of school board meetings nowadays, why does it keep happening? Why aren't the parents involved earlier So they can then, you know, have an objection. Great. They make their objection or decide, you know, what school they want to send their kids to if they have that option, that luxury, I should say, nowadays.
4: Parents became, the school boards became entrenched and all of the organizational, official, elected areas and and bureaucrats, et cetera. This has been a plan. uh, That's part of the cultural Marxist plan is to overtake the culture, arts, education, media, you know, et cetera, and government, of course. And so this has been a plan, and they're entrenched now. And the parents were not watching because we didn't know there was a problem. And I'm a parent, and, you know, it's taken time for all of us to understand. um, And we didn't feel it. And COVID was a really big motivator in helping parents to see what was really going on in the schools and also that they can take authority over their own children because before God, We are the authority. Parents are, and and not the schools, and not not even experts, but the parents. And so we we have to just do what we need to do now, and not give up. We have to resist. You know, that's the bottom line: is that we have to continue to go to the school board meetings. We have to continue to run for school board, and we can't be silent uh, anymore. Um, And but basically, the school boards themselves are not wanting to listen they are, again, they, they, they're entrenched and they have an agenda. And, and we're experiencing the agenda now. In fact, in the presentation I'll be giving um, through the Salt Lake Council, we'll be talking about John Dewey and, and how he brought in a, a communist agenda. And John Dewey is, like, known as the father of education. And how did that happen? And, and we, need to, we need to be aware, we need to be educated, and we need to be mobilized and activated and how to stand up as parents and take back the authority over our kids,
3: you know uh, Gail, I'm going to try to put a link in our podcast how they can people can get over to that um that meeting and possibly sign up that's this fascinating information, uh, so there will be a way for people to to get there and hear what you have to say. You have so much knowledge on this
4: well
2: thanks Larry. Yeah, thank- uh go ahead, Dr Wendy. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, it's. It, thank you so much for joining you. We have such a, an interesting mix of guests on the show that you know we try to present all different positions, all different ideas, and you know the marketplace of ideas that really defines us as a culture um, is is just terrific. And so I want to thank you for for presenting that perspective. Um, I also want to thank our our listeners today. You know, this is a a weekend about the kids. This is a weekend about making sure that we keep our kids safe, both, you know, emotionally and physically as we take them out trick-or-treating in their adorable costumes tonight. Um, And I just wanna say, you know, our prayers are with you, our listeners and your families as we continue to warmly wish you um, a wonderful weekend and really a ton of fun tomorrow night. You know, Larry, you and I gotta get costumes and go out and join them. I mean, what what a great time. Yeah, that'd be fun, yeah. Thank you for joining us. Have a wonderful weekend. We'll see you next week. This is Today with Dr. Wendy. God bless you.
1: Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy.